Hey team, welcome back to the Carb Appropriate Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Vitabiosa. Uh, Vitabiosa is one of my favorite pro, pre, and postbiotic products. Uh, when it first came out, it was interesting because it didn't really look like a lot of the other probiotics out there, and probiotics were getting a lot of play at the time. And this was a little bit different in that it's not just an isolated probiotic. It's not just bacteria put into a capsule. It's a living complex of pre, pro, and postbiotics. In other words, it's basically like a living ecosystem of beneficial bacteria and beneficial compounds, beneficial nutrients for your gut. And it was really interesting when it came out because I hadn't really used a product like that before. I started using it, my partner Bella Nutritionist started using it, and we noticed some pretty big results for our gut health. So I went on and did a little bit of research, and it really started to appear that a lot of the old school probiotics just weren't as effective as these newer symbiotic products. I say newer, but these types of fermented drinks and fermented foods have been around for a long time. But we're starting to see now in the research some really interesting things where they're outperforming standard probiotics, even where those probiotics are much higher doses. And we've had really great feedback from our clients and patients, so I definitely recommend giving it a crack. Uh, you can find Vitabiosa throughout the country. You can find a full stockist list at the Vitabiosa website, which is biosa.co.nz forward slash stockists. And Vitabiosa is now available at Health 2000 stores as well. Now we have a special deal for you as a result of the Carb Appropriate podcast. If you go to nutritionstore.online and use the discount code CABIOSA, so that's CA for Carb Appropriate, BIOSA, B-I-O-S-A, CABIOSA, at nutritionstore.online you'll get 20% off any Vitabiosa product. Now my guest on this episode was Phil Dowling. I consider Phil to be probably the gut health expert in this part of the world. He is a naturopath, a registered clinical nutritionist, he holds a master's degree in clinical nutrition, and really he is one of those guys that has been around for, for decades now, he's been in practice for about three decades, and is a legitimate, holistic, yet evidence-based practitioner. So sit back and enjoy this little discussion on all things gut health. Welcome to the Carb Appropriate Podcast. I'm your host, Cliff Harvey. This song don't give a damn. If the rhymes don't fit with the DJ, quit. This song don't give a damn. You can't sing or dance to it, can't romance to it. This song ain't arrogant, if you don't try and buy it Or if your radio denies it Don't care about what, who got, what's cool on TV Or what spots hot, I forgot I ain't mad at evolution But I stand for revolution Get up, enough is enough Somebody stand up, come on Get up Hey team, welcome back to the Carb Appropriate Podcast where I speak to inspiring people doing interesting things in health, performance and 
Business in the Performing Arts, and today I am very pleased to be speaking with my good buddy, Phil Dowling. Uh, Phil is a clinical nutritionist and educator in naturopathy and clinical nutrition. Um, he has a master's degree in nutrition and is a qualified naturopath. And Phil really is one of the, the OGs of clinical nutrition and naturopathy in New Zealand. I met Phil, I think around eight years ago. Okay, yep. And Phil was nice enough to um, to employ me, I guess, as a sports nutrition lecturer and someone who developed the um, the sports nutrition uh, curriculum at, at a college that we were employed at. And since then, we've gone on and had many interesting discussions. And so I thought it would be of real value to you guys out there to hear some of uh, the, these gems that Phil has. Now, in my opinion, Phil is the the best when it comes to gut health in this part of the world. And so uh, I think given that that is such a massive topic in health nowadays, right. I think there's a lot that people can get out of this. So Phil, welcome along. Thank you so much. First up, I, I know that you, you're probably relatively well known in this space now, but some of the people that are listening to this uh, are, are not practitioners. They may not know exactly where you've come from, what you're about. Right. So how did you get into naturopathy and clinical nutrition originally? Well, it goes way back to the early 90s. In fact, it goes back to the 80s. I got very sick back in the 80s. I was extremely fit in those days, but extremely unhealthy. And I suffered a lot of chronic fatigue. I think a lot of people have actually come to the business because of that. Yeah. So that chronic fatigue lasted off and on for four or five years. I had exhaustive medical investigations, both in the UK and again here, basically telling me there's nothing wrong with me. And so I go back to work, go back to do, do what you do. So I did. Um, but it came to a head in 1990 and someone said, why don't, you, why don't you go and see a naturopath? And I said, what? What's that? You know, what's a naturopath? So eventually I saw this naturopath up in Browns Bay in Auckland and he was able to help me out hugely over the course of two or three months. And basically during that time I made a lot of changes. And he taught me the basic principles of naturopathy that you heal from the inside out. And that's exactly what I did. And he told me that I'd go through a lot of the previous symptoms in reverse order, which is one of the basic laws of naturopathy. And that's exactly what I did. It took me three months and I got better. And during that time I did a lot of gut work I did a lot of lymphatic work, uh, did a little, little bit of acupuncture in that time as well. And I changed my diet, took, took some herbs, um, made some massive changes in my life and also worked on upstairs quite a bit as well because that was yeah. also a big part of it. One of the big things was actually drinking a lot more water. <laughs> uh, cheers. Um, and that's something that I find an awful lot with clients, they just don't drink enough water. So just drinking more water. Got, actually got the lymphatic system moving a lot more sort of cleanly, if you like, and that was what, that was a big part of the functional problem that I had over such a long time, exercising a lot, and I was doing marathon running at the time, mm. and not drinking much water, but drinking beer. Yeah. <laughs> not a good idea. So uh, <laughs> I turned my health around in 1990. Your outcomes, well, exactly. <laughs> so I turned my health around in 1990, and since then, um, 1991, I started, I started studying at South Pacific College, naturopathy. Yeah. Finished that in 93, went out practicing in 94. So I've been a practicing naturopath since 94. Um, the emphasis always since 94 has been gut health because back in the 90s, I studied a lot of the work of Dr. Bernard Jensen and his whole philosophy. And this goes back quite a way because Bernard Jensen died probably about the year 2000. So he hasn't been around obviously since then, but he, he, was, practiced, a chiropractor, he was a chiropractor. 
uh, from the States. Yeah. But his whole life was dedicated to gut health and to overall health of people. And he knew that if you cleanse the gut, people get well. And that's been my whole philosophy, my whole uh, working life, if you like, since 94 anyway. And uh, that's what we did. So, so back in the 90s, we started talking about leaky gut, for example. Yeah. We got poo-poo for that, excuse the pun. <laughs> we got poo-poo for that because back in those days, people used to say leaky gut didn't exist. Yeah. And although Bernard Jensen talked a lot about leaky gut, uh, there was very little research or scientific evidence that it actually did exist. But we sort of knew it existed because people came in with these signs and symptoms that indicated that something was wrong in the gut and that there was something wrong elsewhere in the body. Yeah. And quite often you could tie the two together and call it leaky gut. Yeah. That's what Bernard Jensen started talking about and that's what a lot of us began to see back in the 90s. And then from about the year 2000 onwards, um, I started doing more studies in, into other aspects of gut and started looking at the research into gut health. And that's when I started to become a lot more interested in what's the actual scientific evidence that leaky gut actually does exist. Yeah. And it was probably about 2004, 2005, where you started to get a lot of evidence that leaky gut did exist, and that was a real phenomenon. Mm. And yet even then, it really wasn't accepted by the scientific community until probably about the year 2014, and in some areas still not. Yeah. You know, but there's been copious, copious studies now on leaky gut showing the health effects and also showing how you can heal a leaky gut. Yeah. So these days I use a lot of research to back up what I talk about in clinical practice and what I do in clinical practice. And still the gut is my main interest, but my all my thoughts and feelings around the gut have changed year to year since getting into it in ninety four to the state where it is today. It's interesting you say that because I think um from my point of view, I, I, you know, I'm in the space, and I think mm -hmm. I know a, a fair amount about nutrition and naturopathy, but I'm not a gut guy. Mm -hmm. And so, almost from the outside looking in, it almost seems like there is there's two extremes, and you're somewhere in the middle. Because I, I think, from my point of view, there's a lot of wacky people out there who would be inclined to, similar to adrenal fatigue or any of those things. I've diagnosed yeah, yeah. everything as le leaky gut. Mm -hmm. You know, any sort of symptom profile you're showing, it, it means you've got leaky gut. On the other hand, you've got the, um, the the very orthodox, you know, supposedly scientifically minded people who would basically say, well, of course there's intestinal permeability, but this whole leaky gut syndrome thing is, is rubbish. Mm. And from, from where I'm sitting, it looks like you're kind of in the middle, knowing that there is strong evidence for it, and there's a lot of things that are happening mechanistically and functionally, and we probably do have some idea at least about how to, to work with that clinically. Mm -hmm. Would you say that's fair? That's absolutely fair. We absolutely know how to work with it clinically because there's been quite a bit of research to show what actually helps a leaky gut. Yeah. And there's been a lot of research to show how leaky gut actually, actually evolves in a person, how it sets up, uh, how literally there's the gates open in the gastrointestinal tract to cause a leaky gut. And then how if you come across the right therapeutics, whether it be nutrition or supplementation or whatever, those leaky guts can actually close. Now, the research in terms of closing leaky guts is fairly limited, but it's certainly out there. Yeah. The actual research in terms of actually does it exist, now there's no doubt about it. Yes, it does exist, and that yeah. research is very, very clear. Looking at cause and effect is much more challenging. In other words, if you have a leaky gut, does it cause a foggy brain? Does it contribute to autoimmune disease? The evidence seems to be that it does, yeah. but it's not appearing yet in the pathophysiology texts, which of course I teach at South Pacific College, so it's not appearing it in the texts. When it 
starts to appear in the text is when it will become official. It is appearing in the texts in terms of autism. And that, that started about four or five years ago. That's the only disease in which it's actually acknowledged in the textbooks of pathophysiology that yeah. leaky gut exists. Okay, so it's still not appearing in the real scientific books, if you like, mm -hmm. which have to have at least 10 to 20 years of fully established research behind it before it yeah. starts to become authentic. But the research is out there, yeah. and it's a real thing, and it can be measured, and that's the, that's the key thing. I guess in some respects as well, tangentially, it's beginning to appear because we know, for example, that um, you know endotoxins like lipopolysaccharides and things mm. that they absolutely have an effect on inflammation in the body. You know, systemically, they absolutely have an effect on um, cognition and on um, depressive scores and things like yeah. that. So, yeah. is that? part of the whole complex or am I sort of misreading it's it? It's absolutely part of the complex. I mean, endotoxins are actually built up in the gut. That's where they're actually released by gut bacteria. Somehow they find their way out of the gut and into the systemic circuit, okay, which means in the bloodstream. Yeah. If you have antibodies to, lipo <clears throat> to lipopolysaccharides, it basically means you've got those lipopolysaccharides in the blood. If you've got them in the blood, where do they come from? They've come from the gut. Should they be in the blood? No, they shouldn't. How do they get there? They got there through a leaky gut. Mm. Although there are potentially other ways, which I won't go into, but the major way they'll get into, into, into the bloodstream is actually through a leaky gut. Okay, so we know that it exists. There are tests overseas that you can get where you can actually test for the antibodies to the lipopolysaccharides. Whereas in New Zealand, we have slightly different leaky gut tests. Um, although those tests that I'm talking about will be here very shortly. In fact, I believe they may be coming very, very soon. Yeah. Okay. I want to talk about tests in just a second because I think that's something that's really yeah. misunderstood. Yeah. But initially, is is our understanding of leaky gut a little bit off? Because from the readings that I've done recently, it, it seems like it's far more fluid than a lot of practitioners give it credit for. They kind of they they almost sit in this position of you have leaky gut, which means you've got these degraded cells and you're passing things through, and it's, it's almost like a fixed thing that can then be healed. But my understanding is um, that intestinal permeability changes and can change quite rapidly. Absolutely, it and does. a lot of it's not just structural; the big parts functional as well. It does. It's changing all the time. It's dependent on what you eat. Uh, it's dependent on the supplements that you have or don't have. It's dependent on an awful lot of things, but largely it's dependent on what we call dysbiosis. So, if there is any sort of imbalance in gut bacteria or potentially in, in other pathogens like parasites or fungus, if there's any imbalance there, and so there's an overwhelm of these unhealthy, these sort of unhealthy microbes, that's when you're more likely to get a leaky gut, okay? So the major things that are causing leaky gut tend to be any sort of inflammation. That can be caused by dysbiosis, that can be caused by foods that you're, that you're overly sensitive to. Particularly that can be caused by you know, fragments of foods, like for instance gluten. Mm. Okay, and there are certain other lectins that can contribute to a leaky gut. So there are many potential ways that you can actually cause a leaky gut. The key thing is when you deal with these particular ways, when you help take the right nutrients that can actually heal up a leaky gut, it's healed for a time. Yeah. But if you go back on that, that old diet, and if you go back into old habits, leaky gut will come back. So it's very fluid. And we're talking, when you talk about things like gluten, would you say the major... The major shift there for leaky gut is is structural 
sort of destruction of, of tissue or is it a functional effect of say you know changing zonulin levels and things like that well i mean from the research that's been done by dr fasano i think it was about eight or yeah, nine yeah. years ago um he seemed to basically, basically discover this new protein which you mentioned which is called zonulin and what seems to happen is when you have you know, foods that are high in gluten the gluten triggers triggers the actual release of, of this particular chemical zonulin which is a protein and that protein then goes across and uncouples what's called the tight junctions, mm. which are basically the sort of the things that join the epithelial cells in the gut. When those are uncoupled and loosened up, that then creates a leaky gut. So you get macromolecules basically flowing through. Now, according to his research, he thinks that this is effective in everyone. In other words, everyone to some degree is sensitive to excess gluten. Mm. It's all dependent on degree. So if you have if you have large amounts and you're sensitive to gluten, you will have a leaky gut. If you have small amounts and you're less sensitive to gluten, you may well not have a leaky gut. But the evidence seems to be these days that there are up to 30 to 40% of the population who may be affected by gluten to some degree at least. Mm. And that will to some degree cause a leaky gut for those people. And I guess there could be other factors that are playing into it that uh, are not recognized well. I remember, I think I mentioned this to you one time, I was going through and there was there was some interesting research on foods that helped to close the tight junctions and others that helped to loosen them. Mm. And it became really confusing really quickly because it was even down to subtypes of different foods, different types of capsicum and things like that were, were either you know increasing intestinal permeability or reducing it and I became too confused too quickly. There was no way I could sort of put that together in some sort of clinical format for translation. So. It is, it is extremely confusing, and it's going to be different for different people, and that's the key thing. Yeah. So, I mean, for instance, glyphosate, there's been quite a bit of research recently um, that this particular toxin, which comes from Roundup, may well affect, may well be the actual factor that affects wheat and affects gluten. So whether how much of it is due to, to the gluten itself and how much of it is due uh, to, to the toxic influence of, say, glyphosate, this mm. chemical, no one really knows yet, as far as I can see. Interesting. A lot of people think it's just the fact that gluten has actually changed over the years and the actual chemical and genetic structure of gluten is different to what it was 30 or 40 years ago. Yeah. And that's why it's beginning to affect us more. Other people say, well, no, it's more to do with the glyphosate affecting it. I don't really know. But what I do know is that gluten does affect a lot of people because I'm seeing it more and more in my clinic that when people go off gluten, they're beginning to get healthier. So have you seen, one thing that I've seen quite a lot clinically is there's a subset of people who are affected in a very similar way to gluten responders, but to gluten-like proteins. So avenin from oats and the, um, I can't remember the, the actual name, but you know, they call them the corn glutens. They're not gluten, but they're similar. Yeah, that proteins. seems to happen more and more. Now, yeah. uh, if you've read Dr. Perlmutter's book, which is basically Grain Brain, yeah. in the book, he talks a lot about gluten and a lot about grains in general. He doesn't point the finger at any specific grains other than wheat and other than gluten, but he implies in the book quite well that there are several other grains that have that effect. Mm. I haven't seen that evidence myself in terms of people eating other grains other than gluten to this point. Yeah. But I, I have heard anecdotally other people talk about it, particularly in the States. There's a lot of people saying there are quite a few other grains that, that are causing this. Yeah. And of course, the Paleolithic diet is also based very much on the fact that grains are, are partially the enemy and we should try and avoid or minimize them as well. Yeah. I'm not convinced down that argument yet. I, I think gluten 
has, has a lot to answer for. Yeah. But things like Aberdeen that you find in Oaks, I haven't found that to be such a major issue with people. So I found people like myself, for example, who tends to be sensitive to say, say wheat and say gluten from wheat, but not from oats. Yeah. Um, and I found a lot of other people who do quite well on oats, but do pretty badly on things that contain gluten. Interesting. I um I did a bit of a research review uh, for my the, the clinical nutrition course I teach, mm. and um, basically I run through every major condition. So I think there's a list of about twenty conditions, and we basically put together evidence-based treatment protocols. Right. So I start from an inductive basis. I don't really want to bias myself too much with what I've previously done with clients, and I go into the research and just start from the ground up mm -hmm. and look at all the strongest evidence. And interestingly, with things like Crohn's disease, which I obviously have, uh, it seems to pop up time and time again in the research that a diet that is restricted in dairy, gluten, and corn, along with some other things like carrageenan and you know, the yeah. um, additive, mm -hmm. seem to provide the, the best effects. Now, most people are fine with corn, but I've certainly found my Crohn's patients um, and ulcerative colitis patients benefit from not necessarily getting rid of corn, but certainly corn flour, because it's okay. probably just so concentrated. You know, there's so much of those proteins in there. But yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty, it's, a, it's an interesting area because it is so individual, right? It's extremely individual. Like with Crohn's, I've, I've got a few clients who, who have Crohn's, and I can go back actually 20 years to a client I have with Crohn's who basically went off wheat and dairy and completely cured it, completely cured it, well, as much as you can completely cure it. Yeah. He, he has no signs and symptoms at all. Uh, I found the major offender again tends to be gluten, that's what I found. The second major offender tends to be casein. Yeah. Um, the third major offender tends to be other grains. So, so I do have to agree with you. Yeah. The other major thing that, that I see, you know, when you have uh, a stool analysis of people with Crohn's, they're often lacking in a particular bacteria, which is called fecally prausnitzii. Which I have. I think I've mentioned to you before, which, which you should have in quite relatively high dosage should be yeah. a relatively common one in most people. Remember but when I sent, is, I sent you my yeah, yeah. sample and I, and I had that. You have, really you have which is great, but an awful lot of people with Crohn's yeah, are either very low or completely absent in that. Huh. But it should take up in most people about 5 to 10% of the gut bacteria, something like that. Um, so they're very often lacking in that particular it, one. Any ideas why that's lacking? Do you no, think? I've absolutely no idea at all. And from the research, I couldn't really find that out. Mm. Um, It'd be interesting to do a longitudinal study where you had a whole bunch of people tested their, you know, their microbiome and mm -hmm. then continued to test it and see if there's any shift around the time that people typically get or when they first realize they have Crohn's. Because there's a very, there's very thin bands, right? Typically yeah, that's people right, yeah. find out in their late teens, early 20s, mm -hmm. or in their late 40s, isn't it? Yeah, 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 that's about right. So it'd be interesting to see if there's anything environmentally or anything else that's happening at those times that could maybe distort. Maybe trigger it. I'm, yeah. I'm not really sure. Um, it's quite interesting that um, a lot of people pick up uh, these unhealthy bacteria very early in life, uh, and often, often from their mother. Yes. So it is... Um, that's, that's really, really, if you like, where it all begins. It begins usually uh, depending on what you've been seeded by your mother, mm. okay? And then by age three, you've built up a certain, uh, a certain amount of your own bacteria as well. And then from age three onwards, it's fairly well set for life in terms of an actual signature of the gut bacteria. However, right. that can be significantly changed, in my opinion, 
by your diet and by supplements and, and by lifestyle. Yeah. And obviously that's that's where I'm looking. If someone's got an unhealthy bacteria in their gut or they have fungus or something else like that, you can make changes and it can change very significantly, uh, even within days. Mm. There was a guy, uh, I think, um, in the UK who did some research on his son. And <laughs> he made him eat McDonald's for, for 10 days consecutively, nothing but McDonald's. And he measured his gut bacteria at the outset and at the end. At the end of it, it had changed hugely. So basically, okay. his diversity had gone down very significantly. And he picked up a lot more over that period. Some, in some way, he picked up a lot more unhealthy bacteria. And he had more in terms of quantity of those unhealthy bacteria in his gut at the end of that 10-day period. Wow. So it can change very significantly and very quickly. Yeah. I remember um, seeing some some research on um, kids who were born by cesarean, who were then supplemented with um, inulin, no prebiotic fiber, and yeah. their gut bacteria basically corrected within, I think, nine to twelve months. So it's a fairly long time, but it, it's, it was very different, obviously, to those who who were non supplemented because yeah. they, they they retained that microbiome signature that was more akin to the skin. You know, like the skin microbiome well, think, versus the um, internal microbiome. Thing is, if if you supplement with inulin, uh, that's like a prebiotic, which is going to help your existing healthy bacteria and may, to some degree, and it's a little bit unclear on this, but that may diminish your unhealthy bacteria. What it won't do is it won't actually repopulate new bacteria. No, that's got to come from some external source. Um, so that's going to be the challenge with that. Presumably, if you if they did that supplementation, they may have also Changed diet at the same time and started eating more sort of fermented foods or taking probiotics or something else because it has to be something that's going to trigger the actual addition of new bacteria to the existing ecology. So, clinically, how do you work with that? What, um, what sorts of things do you do to help repopulate the gut? It, it's a really, it's a major, major challenge because apart from take, taking prebiotics, which is going to help the existing bacteria, there are very few ways that are going to really successfully and easily repopulate mm. the gut. Um, but I find the best ways, I, th I think eating ferments to some degree will start to do that. Uh, and I think s taking some probiotics will also help to do that. Yeah. Most probiotics are not that effective at actually bringing around a long-term colonization. In other words, they come in, they do a job, they leave, unless you continue taking them. Yeah. So to actually colonize, really the best way to actually find new colonies would be, would be fermented foods yeah. and taking them at the right time, which would be uh, either during eating or after eating, yeah. so that the pH isn't going to destroy them in the stomach. Yeah. Okay. That would be the best single way. The second best way would be to take appropriate probiotics, and by that I probably mean spore-containing probiotics. So things like Megaspore, which is a product from the States, is quite a good one to actually help with this repopulation. There's some evidence that they've done through their own research that, that they actually do form colonies. Okay. Can form colonies on an ongoing basis. Yeah, uh, but very few, very few probiotics have have that special ability to actually do that. Yeah. Okay. Um, aside from that, it's really just not being over hygienic. In other words, there is bacteria in the environment. Allow yeah. some of it to come in through whatever sources you need. If you've got a strong immune system, you're planting unhealthy, yeah. and you'll still be able to colonize anything that comes in that may be foreign. So even going to, if you go to a foreign country, uh, you're going to pick up some, maybe some healthy bacteria from the environment. Yeah. Okay. You're going to pick up bacteria from the people you live with. You're going to pick up bacteria from your dogs and cats. 
Okay, some of that might be quite good. Yeah. And if you've got a strong immune system, you'll kill off anything that's unhealthy. Well, it's pretty good. There's good research for that um, in the for sort of ear, nose, and throat, and, and those types of things, right? For later yeah. infections, or for later um, later serious infection, or for later development of asthma. Kids who have low grade infections when they're younger have a far lower proclivity towards asthma when they get older because they've obviously developed that immune tolerance and probably also cultured their microbiome to some degree. Well, that's the other side of it. If you get things like asthma or other atopic disorders, they are often relate, not always, but often relate to having an, un to having an unhealthy gut microbiome at birth yeah. and often relate to sort of cesarean section births. And that's not 100% all the time, but quite a lot of the time it relates back to either having, either picking up unhealthy bacteria from your mother mm. or having a cesarean birth. Yeah. And of course, what's happening now an awful lot in the States is they're beginning to swab people with vaginal bacteria if they're having cesarean births. Mm -hmm. In fact, that actually happened in the last year or two to a guy who's a researcher over there, uh, over there called Rob Knight, who's a Kiwi, but he's one of the top researchers in the world. And mm -hmm. when uh, his wife, Fetty, recently gave birth, they had a cesarean. I, I believe I'm right in saying they had a cesarean. And they went through this particular process of actually swapping them with um, yeah, so vaginal bacteria. Now, I could be wrong in that story because I heard that about 18 months ago. Uh, but I'm fairly certain that that's exactly what happened with a particular though, researcher. Pretty commonly done now. Yeah. I think it's, it's fascinating that, and this is a little bit tangential, but I think it's fascinating that we, we think about, because we're so into gut health now, mm. you've been into it for a long time, but now yeah. everyone's into it, right? <laughs> and everyone, therefore, has some understanding of the microbiome. I think that people's understanding of the microbiome in a broader sense is, is quite limited because people only think about the gut. Whereas, you know, people forget that the microbiome, we have a microbiome that is distinct for our, our, our you know, mucous membranes of the, the nose and the oral cavity and our skin microbiome. It's all over us. On every epithelial tissue in your body, yeah. so your skin, your digestive system, and respiratory tract to a lesser extent, but to some extent, they're inside the mouth. Yeah, there's a huge microbiome in the mouth, and that's why for years I've been telling my clients to to not use, you know, these antibacterial mouthwashes or not to yeah. use antibacterial soap, and not to even use too much soap anyway. Agreed, agreed, hundred percent. You know, and seeing massive improvements in skin conditions because of that. Absolutely, I mean, time and time again, it's what you see, and that's the advice you have to give. So anything you're putting on your skin, you've got to make sure that that's going to feed your microbiome. If it's not, it's probably not doing you a service. So would you go by the old adage that if you put it on your skin, you should be able to eat it? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So think about soap. Not very tasty. <laughs> Not very tasty. Yeah. <laughs> Something best avoided yeah. inside the mouth. So I, I like I to wash my hair in about 20 years. So. I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what, um, overall, you, I, I want to go back to the, the ferments and things. I had an epiphany a few years back because I never really thought that chronic either chronic use of probiotics or chronic use of ferments was really, I thought it was obviously beneficial, but I didn't really think too much about it until I was looking at some of the research and it appeared to be when you looked at the anthropology of human eating, mm. there was basically never a time that we haven't eaten ferments of some type. Yeah. You know, we've eaten fermented fruit and we've basically been fermenting for almost our entire existence anyway. It's always been there, so that kind it of has, made me think we probably need the chronic low-dose stuff. 
Yeah, there's a bit of a challenge here in the fact that a lot of people don't like sour. And of course, fermented foods are very sour. Yeah. Now, that's not a bad thing. That's a really good thing. In, in fact, Ayurvedic medicine really thinks there are six tastes, and we need to get all six tastes inside our body, inside our mouth, inside our gut, wherever, on a regular basis, because each taste has medicine mm. to it. So the sour taste has medicine, the bitter taste, the astringent taste has medicine. Yeah. Now, provided you're getting enough sour, bitter, and astringent, they're three that are very good for the gut, very, mm. very good for the gut, in different ways. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So I like to make sure that my clients get a really broad, balanced diet, including ferments, as much as possible. People yeah. are resistant to ferments, but they're really, really good for you. They, they taste okay once you get into them, yeah. once you get the sour taste back. Do you think that's a conditioning thing where people have just become so attenuated to sweet and to, you know, to, to those modern flavors? Well, people like sweets and people like salty, right? So people, if you have something really sweet, you crave something salty. If you have something really salty, you crave something mm. sweet. So we're flipping between yin and yang the whole time. Yeah. And uh, if you look at Chinese medicine or if you look at uh, some macrobiotics or something like that, they're looking at trying to get away from the extreme yin and yang and try and get a more narrow range of foods. You get them by eating the other four tastes, which, yeah, is, yeah. which is pungent, sour, uh, astringent and bitter. Yeah. So by getting those other four tastes in your diet, you get balance. When you get that balance, people don't complain about hyperglycemia anymore. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. everything's back in balance. Yeah. Okay. They don't. They don't. If you like, complain about a lot of health issues because they're getting the balance from the tastes in their diet. Yeah. And this is Ayurvedic philosophy, but it, it applies in the Western world. Yeah. And you I know, I, if we have liver problems, we take bitter herbs. Yeah. Right. And bitter helps the digestive system. Yeah. It helps the liver. Okay. So why do we need to take herbs if we just get the bitter from the diet? You don't need herbs if you get it from your diet. And I know that there'll be people listening who are saying, what are these guys talking about? They're talking about tastes and flavors and things, mm. and that has no scientific justification, but they're missing the connection here. And I think that what, what's fascinating about what you say is that you know you talk about the bitter herbs, for example, the bitter, bitter foods, yeah. you know, bitter greens and things like that, mm. and how they're good for digestion and how they're good for the liver. I mean, that's, that's been proven. But it's actually scientific justification. So for instance, exactly. if, if you take a bitter food, well, taste is at the back of your mouth, there are bitter receptors. Yeah. As, soon as, those bitter, as soon as those receptors are actually triggered, they stimulate hydrochloric acid because your brain thinks you're getting something poisonous coming down because uh -huh. most poisons are bitter in taste. Yeah. So when your system thinks you might be getting something poisonous, you produce more hydrochloric acid. Yeah. So you know you take bitter herbs to help with hydrochloric acid output. Yeah. It's protective. Okay, so your bitter herbs are protective in your gut. And many of those chemicals are also, I mean, the, the ones that provide that bitterness, they're also potent antioxidants, or they, um, you know, are particular chemicals that help with, you know, phase one or phase two detox. In the they're liver. fantastic. I mean, your yeah. herbs like milk thistle, like angelica. Um, Puha. Puha, or, or even, yeah, even Puha, yeah. You know, a lot of these herbs are really good. You know, Carlo yeah. is another very good one. Yeah. Um, a lot of these herbs I'm recommending to my clients for a number of reasons to yeah. do with digestive health. So you, you also tried a, um, a little drink that we gave you before. Yeah, now, I haven't had that before. No, I've become fascinated by that because basically we, we were given, I'm not going to go on about you know, product endorsements mm. and things like that, but um, we were given some of that, the product, and I can put a link in the show notes, but we were given mm. some of that product a little while back, and I kind of thought, okay, but is it really going to do the job of a high-dose probiotic 
And so I went away and looked at the research. And interestingly, these these products that are called symbiotics now that mm. are that the complexes, you know, they're like a living complex of pre, pro, and um, postbiotics. Yeah. Not adding those things as ingredients within a formula, but that's just the way it is because mm. you've basically got a, a living fermented drink. Yeah. They were showing better results at lower doses for Crohn's and colitis and a range of other things mm. than the traditional probiotic yeah. treatments. And that sort of flipped again my, my, my thinking around things because it sort of started with the ferments and understanding yeah. that, hey, these are things that we've eaten for our entire development. And I yeah. love fermented food, so yeah, that's a good right. thing. Yeah. But it also shows that these living complexes are probably more resilient. They probably get through the gut more effectively and there's just more to them. Well, they do seem to get through. In my opinion, I think as I mentioned earlier, you'd probably do a lot better not having them on an empty stomach when you've got the pH of about one. You'd probably do better having them once you've eaten or during food yeah. when the pH may go down to about three to four. Uh, there's much more does chance it change of surviving. That yeah, it does, yeah. Wow. Uh, you've got much more chance of that bacteria surviving if you have it even immediately after food than if you have it before food. Um, so that's when I te tend to eat it. Yeah. Uh, I tend to eat it with food. Uh, and I get a feeling it gets through. Even if it doesn't get through, the advantage of ferments is they partly digest the food that's being fermented. Mm. Okay, so if it's yogurt, they're partly digesting that milk in mm. the yogurt, for example. So you're getting pre-digested proteins going through, yeah. which is great. You know, so you're getting that advantage if you've got weak digestion in terms of protein digestion, for instance. That's going to help in that process. So ferments are really good for just beginning the whole digestive process and helping us on helping things on its way. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So I'm a great fan of ferments, and I believe that's something that a lot more people should be having on a regular basis. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, are there micronutrients as well that you typically prescribe or use, or do you go for a sort of broader approach? I go for a much broader approach. I mean, there are some supplements coming out which will have some zinc or some vitamin. A or uh, you know, vitamin A is good for the mucous membranes of the gut. Okay, zinc is very, very healing. It actually helps to bind up those tight junctions, which yeah. is great. But taking them in isolation, I, I don't generally encourage too much. I, I believe you need to get it as much from whole foods as you can. Yeah. So the sorts of things I'm recommending tend to be not so much supplemental in the way of having a whole range of different nutrients contained in the supplement. And there are some you know, leaky gut formulas out there based on that. I prefer something based more on whole foods or herbs. Yeah. So in terms of leaky gut, things, the sorts of things I like are things like aloe vera, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. which you know, from an Ayurvedic perspective, it, it's astringent. It binds tissues. Yeah. And it's a little bit sweet, so it actually helps to nourish tissues. Okay. So it's actually healing, healing that way. Same with slippery elm. So slippery elm bark has, has a very nourishing effect on the tissues, but a slightly binding, astringent effect on it as well. So I like anything based on aloe vera, slippery elm. They're probably two of my favorites in terms of healing up a leaky gut. Um, but there are many other ways. Um, the key thing is whole foods. Yeah. So things that tend to get a bad rap are things like lentils, for example, because they contain lectins. But those lectins are usually destroyed by heat. Okay. Yeah. By, by the time you eat them, they're astringent, and anything astringent is going to help to bind up a gut. Oh. So we're not eating a lot of beans these days and legumes. And people have been put off them by... Um, by the Paleolithic diet, for example. Yeah. And I don't think that's a good thing. I think it's in small dose, they're really, really good for you. And they've been eating them in Ayurvedic medicine for thousands of years. So are there people for whom 
lentils wouldn't be appropriate or legumes wouldn't be appropriate, do you think? I think there are some people who are very sensitive to them and they may not be appropriate, but I haven't found too many of those people. Okay. What will happen is if you're not used to them, they will often in some people start, you know, start producing flatulence. Yeah, yeah. Flatulence. <laughs> okay. That will happen in some people. That's not necessarily a bad thing. And what the studies show is over the course of two or three weeks, that will start dying off as you get used to it. So it's a question of adapting to something new. And so provided they're relatively well cooked, they provide a good source of protein, good source of carbohydrates. And I think for most people, are perfectly good food. So what are your thoughts then on the um, autoimmune protocol or the autoimmune paleolithic diet? Do you think that's too restrictive? Yeah, I think it is. I think it might be okay in the short term. Yeah. But I'm not a great fan of taking people off food for long periods of time. Um, and I think that's a major issue. I have clients come to me and say, well, I've been told I can only eat these foods. And I said, who told you that? And they said, well, that they've been to see someone and they say, you need to limit just these foods. Yeah. Now, I think that's probably okay for a very short period of time, particularly if you have a, if you have a blood test and you, you have high IgGs for a whole range of different foods. So what you need to do then is maybe go off those foods for a short period of time and then slowly start reintroducing them. But if they're whole foods, Okay, if they're whole foods, there's no reason why people should be become overly sensitive to them in the longer term. It's just a question of there's been something that's triggered it in the first instance. Mm. You need to get through that trigger point and then back into normality it again. Yeah, that, that reminds me of the um, you know the sort of FODMAP craze over the last few years. And obviously the yeah. FODMAP, the low FODMAP diet is clinically effective, it's, it works, it's proven. You know, that Monash yeah. University research shows that it's it's very effective for reducing the symptoms mm -hmm. of IBS. My concern was always, when I looked at the restrictions, it, it eliminated so many of those great prebiotic fibers, resistant starch and yeah. things like that. And the later research showed that if people followed it for too long, they would get negative effects in the microbiome. And that's what's showing, and that's showing from about one month onwards. Wow. So as quickly as that. So my concern has always been for the FODMAP diets in terms of cutting back really important things like inulin, which you mentioned earlier. There's a whole variety of other prebiotics in the foods that are recommended you come off for the FODMAP diet. Now the reason it works is because it's feeding a lot of, uh, a lot of bacteria in the small intestine. Okay, so the small intestine is then bloating up and people are getting SIBO, you know, small intestinal bacterial okay. overgrowth as a result of that. Yeah. And people are saying, well, these foods are really bad for me. It's not the foods that are bad for you, it's the position of the bacteria that's bad for you. Too much bacteria in the small intestine is not good. Why is it in the small intestine? Well, for some reason, it's found its way from the large intestine into the small intestine, okay? You should have large amounts of, of bacteria in the large intestine, you should have very small amounts in the small intestine. So when you get overgrowth, it may be overgrowth of both good and bad bacteria. So the key problem with SIBO and the way not to treat it is by going on the FODMAP diet, in my opinion. It may be okay for about a month, but no yeah. longer than that. The key thing with SIBO is to get motility going. Yes. And a lot of people have very, very weak motility, which means that, that foods are backing up from the large intestine to the small intestine. Yeah. Because, you know, they're literally going in there to have a look and see what's happening. Yeah. You know, the bacteria are translocating from the large intestine to the small intestine to small intestine and building up home there where they shouldn't really be. So I have my theory based on the research as to what the, in my opinion, the biggest factor in reducing motility in mm. people nowadays yeah. is, and I'd be interested to know if it's, it's the same. It's probably the same one. It's probably the same. What do you think? <laughs> I think it's the Vegas move. 
So stress. Yeah, yeah, stress. Well, yeah, partly stress. Yeah. Okay, so that's the biggest thing. So if you look at the vagus nerve, that runs on the parasympathetic nervous system. So, which means when you sort of rest and digest, yep. well, when you rest, you you digest. Yeah. Okay, and things move through properly. Yes. When you're stressed, it tends to shut down that vagus nerve, which is the connection between our brain and our gut. So you become sympathetic nervous system dominant. You do, and then when that shuts down, the peristalsis weakens, and so things don't move through quickly. Yeah. So that's the number one cause of SIBO is is basically stress and and what we call sympathetic dominance. So the stress is affecting the action of the vagus nerve. But there are other things that also affect the vagus nerve. And this is where, this is where we go into more, more sort of controversial territory. Yeah, okay. I like the, controversial territory. The evidence <laughs> these days seems to be that people are, snacked, are actually snacking too much. Mm. And Absolutely. That's been the case for a long time. In the past, we used to say, oh, yeah, you can control hyperglycemia by snacking. Nowadays, I never encourage people to snack, okay? You need to have an empty stomach to bring about the cleansing wave that begins in the stomach with a wave that's initiated through the vagus nerve into the stomach and it shoots out stuff from the stomach when the stomach is empty and yes. sets up peristalsis in the small intestine. Now, provided your vagus nerve is working well and provided you allow your stomach to empty properly, which means four to five hours to allow it to empty, yeah. then that peristaltic action is gonna work properly. But if you're constantly feeding, yeah. that wave that goes down, so it's only really been in the last year or so that I've been encouraging clients not to ever snack Interesting. if they can avoid it. That's um, you probably don't know that, but know this. But that's my number one rule for nutrition. For anything else, uh, I yeah. tell my clients don't snack. Right. Eat meals, don't snack. Um, for and I do. I wasn't really thinking about that clearance per se. For me, mm. it was more about all the research, and there's lots of it that shows when people have um, greater frequency of eating and they're um, ingrained into snacking behaviors and things, they overeat. It's that simple. Yeah, they, yeah, they overeat. Yeah. Um, they, they obviously have much greater problems with glycemic issues, and they typically aren't able to ever exercise their proper satiety response. That's correct. Because yeah. they're never eating a proper meal. They're only eating these small, moderate meals. They forget what it feels like to be hungry, and they forget what it feels like to be full. Yeah. But it's interesting about the vagus nerve stuff because that adds a whole different layer to it as well. Oh, it, it's extremely important that that vagus nerve is working well and pushing everything through. And for a lot of people, maybe their total transit time through the gut is two or three days, and that's really far too slow. Yeah, definitely. I'm not talking about not going to the toilet for two or three days. I'm talking about the actual transit time from mouth to the rectum. Yeah. And you really got to get that down. And part of the way to get that down is to get the movement through the small intestine a little bit quicker. And when you have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, it feels like things aren't moving. Yeah. So I feel bloated and I start pushing out here after a meal. And I feel uncomfortable. And I feel gaseous. And I have some pain sometimes. These are classic SIBO things. Yeah. And often these people will snack on a regular basis and will be under a lot of stress. And they're the two key things for treating SIBO, in my opinion, more so than anything else than, say, working on a FODMAPs diet, or even killing off yeah. the unhealthy bacteria. So if someone's eating a diet that's really high in you know, processed and refined food, maybe it's too high in sugar, they're snacking mm. a lot, is part of the complex of SIBO also resulting from low stomach acid, particularly if they're stressed as well? Does that also well, play it comes well? from both ends, really. So if you have low stomach acid, which you may have if you're sympathetic dominance and you're stressed, if you have low stomach acid, which means strange enough that you have a pH of maybe two or three, so it's moving upwards, then you're uh, less able to kill off some of the bacteria. 
yeah, the, exactly. the, the maybe coming through coming through your mouth. So you're more likely to set up bacteria through that source uh, at the proximal end of the small intestine. Are some of the bacteria in the small intestine also degraded by that sort of high acid chime that squirted through? I suspect so. I don't know the answer to that. I suspect so. So the high acid chime isn't that uh, that over acid. It's about 6.5 to 6.9. So it's already been alkalized. Initially though. in the small intestine, as it moves into the small intestine, and then it moves down to about 7.5, yeah. something like that. So in the initial stages, there may be some killing off at 6.5 to 6.9, but I doubt there's much at that sort of pH. Okay. Um, less likely anyway. Cybo is a huge topic clinically now, isn't it? There's a lot of people, or there's a few people at least making a lot of money off treating SIBO. Well, there are huge <laughs> summits in the States on, uh, um, on SIBO, and some of them I've done online, and they've been very good. And I think some of the people there are on the right track, but the ones who are talking about FODMAPs are probably on the wrong track. That's, that's yeah. actually my opinion. Some of them are just talking about vagus nerve, and that's exactly on the right track, is See, my opinion. As you know, I don't really work a lot with, with gut health per se anymore. Mm. Yeah. No. If I ever do, I take a very simple approach of, of just of getting people taking care of their food environment, eating mm. a good natural and processed diet, you know, eating some fermented foods, sleeping enough, doing some meditation, doing some weight training, you know, all the very basic things. Yeah, yeah. Lo and behold, it typically clears out. Having said that, I don't really work with them clinically anymore. I send them to, to you, but I find <laughs> that you take care of the big things, and oftentimes the little things fall into place. Yeah, that's but whether that's me being too overly simplistic, I'm not sure. It's not that complicated. <laughs> At the end of the day, you eat uh, basically. There's a few very simple rules. If you eat a good quality whole food diet, now one of the things which we haven't talked about is basically diversity. So to have a healthy microbiome, you've got to have a really diverse set of bacteria in your gut. And the more diverse, the healthier you will be. Yeah. The ways to get a diverse microbiome are basically twofold. Firstly, you have to have diversity in your diet. So if you're eating from a very narrow range of foods, yeah. you will not have a broad-based microbiome. The wider the base, in other words, you should be eating 30 to 50 different foods every week at least. Wow. You know, something like that. And if you do that and they're whole foods, you will probably have a healthy microbiome. I would recommend that anyone listening to this jots down over a couple of days what they're eating and, mm. and look at how much diversity is actually there. And I think they would be blown away by the lack of diversity we have. It makes all the difference because your diversity score dictates the health of the microbiome and the health of the individual almost. Yeah. The more diverse, the healthier the individual. The less diverse, in other words, if someone's got a diversity of about you know, 30 different bacteria in the gut, that's very small, okay? They're much more likely to have all sorts of health issues. And that might even include things like obesity that may come into the picture as well. Absolutely. Um, there's lots of theories around that. Nothing's been absolutely proven there. Uh, but what they have shown is if you take um, if you take the bacteria out of, sort of slim mice and put it into overweight mice, yeah. the, overweight, the overweight mice become slim. Yeah. That has been shown, and that's been shown to some degree in humans as well. Yeah. Uh, hasn't been so clearly proven in humans, but it's likely to be the same sort of scenario. So it's getting the right culture into your, into your gut. And that's why fecal transplants which are being tested now in the States, yeah. will become the almost go-to in five years' time. And, I mean, to, to me that's fascinating because, you know, we've discussed this before. You can go to a, a mind-body health conference and it's all about the mind-body connection. Yeah. You can go to a gut health conference and it's all about the gut. You can go to a metabolic conference and it's all about your metabolism of carbs versus fats and all this kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah. In reality, there is so much more. 
mm. going on. And it's all of those things and a whole bunch more as well. Well, I mean, now they're actually doing a lot of research into the brain-gut connection. And now they're finding yeah. these sort of connections that go in both directions. So the brain connects with the gut, the gut connects with the brain. So there's lots of gut bacteria that produce toxins that end up affecting your brain. And they travel, they often travel either through the bloodstream or through the vagus nerve. And did you know, this something just came Probably out not. in the last couple of days, I think. There was a study just published, and they're starting to really get down to a better understanding of all the um, the non-synaptic, so sort of non-axon, non-junction neural pathways that exist. And they don't know exactly how they work. They just know that they do work. Even when, for example, neurons are severed, there is still connection taking place, and there's still signals being sent. And so this speaks to that whole sort of quantum side of things where there's an amorphous connection, not just in the brain, but throughout the various neurons in the body, whether that be in the heart, whether that's the enteric nervous system, whether there's connection between those well, things. Well, everything is connected, and they're beginning to discover where those connections are taking place. But particularly with gut-brain, a lot of research has been done on that in the last five to ten years. Yeah. And I've read almost all the research, and it's really interesting to show the connections. So when you're treating something like Alzheimer's, well, the ideal thing is to treat it years and years earlier. But there's lots of things you can do you can do with your gut, particularly around fungus and around things oh. like um, so yeast there that may well help with conditions like Alzheimer's, potentially at least. Uh, but again, you've got to catch it early. Yeah. Um, but I mean, other brain things like anxiety and depression, again, they're finding gut connections there as well. Yeah. So the more they find out, the more interesting it becomes. So when people are, particularly practitioners, when they're working mm -hmm. with gut health, what do you think are some of the biggest mistakes people are making? Well, mistakes, there's actually quite a lot of mistakes people are making um, in terms of their lives. A lot of people are eating unrefined foods. Sorry, are eating refined foods. Yeah, okay. Overprocessed. I think that's one of the major things. Eating sugar. Sugar's going to feed particularly yeast, but it's also going to feed some, some unhealthy bacteria. And no amount of probiotics is going to fix that. Yeah. So a lot of it is around two things. Stress is the one thing. And the foods people eat is, is basically the second thing. And also when people eat. Okay. Uh, you know, snacking is certainly not going to help. But eating intermittently, if you like, in other words, eating, eating from time to time, not on a regular basis, is not a good thing. It's good to, if your body's expecting food at a certain time, it's good to feed your body at that time. Mm. If you're hungry, then you eat. If you're not hungry, then you don't eat. I mean, one of the benefits that people are finding these days, certainly in the last two or three years, is that fasting also has a very positive effect on the microbiome. Yeah. Okay. And intermittent fasting has, has a very positive effect. Okay, so that's another thing clients should start to think about doing some intermittent fasting or some time-restricted eating. Yeah. Because a lot of the research overseas is showing that time-restricted eating is extremely good for your health at all levels, not just at the gut, but at every level you can talk about. Yeah. Including possibly even things like things like regeneration of stem cells. Yeah. So there's some research in that area now, so it's really encouraging. Yeah. And I, I think as well, um, something that people often miss when they talk about gut health, but I have noticed a massive benefit myself and with clients. Movement, exercise, you know, even to the point where strenuous ac activity, resistance training, weightlifting, things like that, have a massive positive effect on the gut for a number of reasons. You know, you're basically stretching the viscera when you're yeah. moving through different planes. 
Um, there's an effect there on the enteric nervous system. You're properly exercising stress, which helps you to modulate your proper stress responses and things like yeah. that. Um, there, there's just so much, you know, modulating a, a immune responses. And, well, you yeah. know, the greatest effect on autophagy, there was a study just came out recently where, you know, people talk about fasting for autophagy. The biggest effect is exercise on modulating and increasing autophagy. Then fasting, then fasting mimicking diets like the keto diet. <laughs> so it's basically in that spectrum. Right, so yeah. I, I kind of figure if you're doing all three of them, you're probably getting a pretty good whack. But if you're, you know, intermittent fasting and also exercising, yeah. you're getting the two biggest factors. Well, absolutely. I mean, there's a basic rule of gut health that if you've got weak motility in the gut, you've probably got weak motility elsewhere. In other words, you aren't moving. You're sitting in a chair for hours on end, like we are, <laughs> and not moving. So I think you need to... But you're a squash champ, so... Well, I'm not a squash champ, but I play squash. <laughs> um, but you do need to need, you know, you don't have to play squash, but you need to do an hour's exercise every day of some sort that involves movement. Yeah. And ideally, I mean, one interesting thing that came up, which I feel a bit guilty about these days, is, is that when I saw my naturopath back in 1990, he noted that I did a lot of, sort of distance work as in marathon running, so a lot of work on my legs, a lot of work on the lungs, he said, you look very weak in the upper body. So <laughs> he got me onto this exercise regime, which is basically working on my upper body every day. Yeah. And I've let that go over the years, and I wish I hadn't, to be honest, because I felt really, really good when I was doing a lot of upper body work. So in other words, you don't just focus on one aspect of exercise, you yeah, focus exactly. on the whole body. Yeah. And that's the best form of exercise you can get. Absolutely. Okay. And I think too, with intermittent, activity you know i mm -hmm. think too often and I've, I've lectured about this a lot over the last couple of years too often people think well i need to get my exercise in so they set themselves a bit of a regimen and let's say they're going to go into the gym two or three times a week yeah they sit on their butts all day mm -hmm. and so they're in a, a very sedentary state as their natural state of being and they go into the gym and hand themselves and the body thinks holy well, what's what going on happening? yeah exactly i'm yeah. running away from a tiger i've got this massive stress response yeah and then I stop for a couple of days, and then I go back and do it. You know, they're yeah. not building up the the resilience or the threshold of moving more constantly, and that might just mean getting up from your desk and going for a quick walk or doing mm. a push up or something. You've got to be moving or doing something on a consistent basis, you know, yeah. throughout the day. Yeah. And all the evidence and the research shows that. So, yeah, you know, absolutely. Yeah, you got moving too. Mm. So, Phil, outside of the health space. Mm. Uh, what, what sorts of things do you do to keep yourself healthy that aren't really in you know this this sort of clinical area? <laughs> you obviously play some squash <laughs> and things like that. Well, I'm actually injured at the moment. I, I've got a slight a tendon strain uh, right where you need it for, for playing squash, which is not ideal. And of course, tendons are slow to heal, but uh, I'm hoping to get back into it in the next few days anyway. So what I do is, uh, from an exercise perspective, I do a lot of walking. I mean, luckily where I live, I can I can walk in lots of interesting directions and get lots of nice views. So I do about an hour to an hour and a half a day walking. Yeah. Um, I do a little bit of upper body work, mainly press-ups, but not as often as I should. Um, but just, just in terms of keeping fit, I don't stress myself so much as I used to. So I used to work very, very hard. Now I work a lot less hard than I used to. Mm. And I try and avoid stressful environments. So my home environment's very unstressful. <laughs> and in fact, my working environment, because I enjoy what I do, is also unstressful. Yeah. So I had some, some health issues four or five years ago. I'm over that now completely. And I attribute that to a much better state of mind and less stress at work. Yeah. So I think what I do on a day-to-day -day basis is just live a very simple life yeah. compared to what I was doing five years ago. Yeah. And that works for me. Now, I have to take into account that some people come and see me have got very busy jobs. They can't manage 
an easy life. But I, I had an email yesterday from someone who's got chronic gut problems. And I asked her to keep a stress diary, and she didn't. She actually said, sorry, I haven't kept it. I'll keep it today. But she said she's been really bad in the last week. And it turns out her stress level has been very bad in the last week. Mm. Okay. I saw a client yesterday as well. Exactly the same story. She'd had a very stressful week. Um, she's extremely underweight. She had a very stressful week. And again, that seemed to be affecting her gut, affecting her appetite, affecting everything. So you see it time and time again. The more stressed you are, the more people's gut's affected. Yeah. So one of the key things is find a way to manage your life so your stress is diminished at least a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. So who are some of the people that you, um, as we're sort of wrapping up, who are some of the people that you, or that are your go-tos in the, the health space? You know, any, any names that pop out as people that you really go to for advice or information? Well, I go, yeah, I go to for information either on YouTube or I do health summits uh, sort of through the US. Yeah. And they're on, on a regular basis and they're free. So I do these summits on quite a regular basis just to keep in touch because they're, they tend to be about three or four years ahead of us. So I like to see what's coming. So I was doing these microbiome summits in the States four or five years ago when it was big news then. Now it's big news here. Yeah. At the moment, the big news in the States is fasting and extended fasting. In other yeah. words, fasting from three days onwards yeah, yeah. and beyond. So that's becoming a lot more popular over there now. Intermittent fasting is almost yesterday's news yeah. over there. Right? Yeah. So I go to people like people like David Perlmutter. You'll be familiar with it. He's hugely into ketosis and he's into fasting and he's into gut, gut health and other stuff. So he would be one of my main, if you like, gurus. He's uh, a sort of neurologist who's been practicing for 45 years, but he soon saw the error of his ways and started moving from traditional neurology into holistic neurology. Yeah. Uh, he's written several books, including Grain Brain and Grain Maker. Uh, I don't believe 100% of what he says, but, but I'm behind 99% of it. But yeah. he's hugely into, into ketosis. My number one guru, if you like, from the, from the States will be Dartis Karazian, who uh, I don't know if you've come across no, him. No. He is a chiropractor, but he's also a Harvard researcher. Huh. Uh, he's very easy to listen to. He talks a lot of common sense. He knows biochemistry back from inside out, yeah. but can talk very easily on it on a whole range of topics. But he's very much into thyroid health, into brain health, and into gut health. So he's he's well worth looking at and finding out more about. And I mean, more recently, David Jockers, he's uh, yeah, mentioned a guy who I mentioned to you earlier. He's into ketosis. He's into fasting. Yeah. Uh, he's been practicing in the States for about 20 years, I think, now. He's, Is he a nutritionist? or He's, uh, he's a chiropractor as well, actually. In okay. the States, they have a lot of chiropractors who move into holistic health. And yeah. some of them become holistic naturopaths. And others, others don't. They just still call themselves chiropractors. Yeah. But a lot of these holistic doctors and holistic naturopathic doctors in the States really know their research really, really well and can quote the research on a regular basis and very easily. Yeah. And a lot of these naturopathic doctors in the States, and there's a whole realm, realm of them, like Dr. Hyman is quite a well-known guy yeah. in the States. Uh, there's a whole raft of them who I've watched and listened to on a regular basis. And you know, you can find these people on podcasts, you can find them on YouTube, but they've got a lot of good information to share. Yeah. Um, so in New Zealand, there's no specific person who I would go to, but but, it, but overseas, it certainly would be. Yeah. Uh, I've learned from people like Joe Pizzorno, who is affiliated yeah. to the college which I teach at. So so he comes over here once every two years, 
and he's got a lot of very interesting information. He's an Particularly, he is. He set up Bastyr College. Yes. So he comes over here every couple of years. So yeah. I get to meet him every couple of years. But he also practices from the states and from Bastyr, from Seattle. And he's written him. several books. And his books are detailed. Yeah, I hear his wealth of knowledge. I, I have never met him, but I, I his main him. area will be detoxification, particularly of heavy metals. Okay. So uh, I read all his stuff. Um, there's a lot of good people who, who I follow. Yeah. Uh, that's my main interest in life. I, I spend my weekends doing, doing research and following people and trying to find out what's happening. And I never quite turn off on that, but I enjoy it. And that's why I continue to do it. And so what's, um, what's new for you this year? What's your, your big project? Are you you've been in clinical practice? And well, in clinical practice, practice, I guess, um, I mean, I'm doing some time-restricted eating at the moment myself, and it's working very well for me. I'm happy with that. I'm going to encourage more of my clients into that. I have been encouraging people for the last four years to do 12-hour do fast every day, which basically means from finishing eating at night to breakfast time, you get a full 12 hours where you don't eat. Mm -hmm. That's a good start. But what I'm doing for myself is, is what's called time-restricted eating. Yeah. So I'm choosing to basically not have breakfast and to basically start at lunchtime. Yeah. You have a, you have a reasonable size meal at lunchtime, reasonable size meal at dinner time, and you do what's called a 16-8, which means you have 16, or in my case, probably 18 hours of not eating, and then six hours, six to eight hours of actual eating time. Yeah. Now you can do that if you're a person who really needs needs breakfast. You could do it. You have a big breakfast or a big lunch. Yeah. and not have dinner. Yeah. Um, so clients could do one of those two. I prefer, I don't miss breakfast particularly, I'm not that hungry at breakfast, so I can do well without. By lunchtime I'm hungry, so yeah. I'll have a good breakfast, I'll have a good lunch, and I'll compensate for what I might have been having at breakfast at lunchtime. So I have the same amount of calories throughout the day, but I just have it twice a day. Yeah. Okay, lunch and dinner. That works well for me, it may not work for everyone, but again, that's something that's becoming popular in the States. Yeah, there's good um, evidence that that I, And I've seen the evidence that it works. Yeah. Um, so I'm quite behind that now. I've begun to encourage clients into that, but it's something that people quite resist because it's really? a big change. Well, well it, it, it's a big change. Yeah. And I found clients, you know, embrace it because the, I find with less frequency of eating, there's less preparation, you know, you're dealing with busy people, they don't need to worry so much about all these, you know, mm -hmm. meal, snack, meal, snack, all the old sort of paradigm stuff. And a lot of people don't really want to fuss with breakfast in the morning. So it makes it pretty yeah. easy. But I understand that some people as well are very resistant to change, so. Well, and people like breakfast, people like getting out, having something to eat, go to work. So it's that um, type of thinking you've got to work through and add people. Yeah. Your clients have to decide, well, is this something I want to continue or do I want to try this? Okay, the good thing about time-restricted feeding is it's quite safe, it's not a problem. Once you move into extended fasting, which would be really from anything from one day onwards, you really need some supervision because yeah. I have supervised fasts, particularly, uh, well, quite a few years ago now, but I used to supervise fasts for the college and also where I used to live. Uh, I haven't supervised fasts re recently, but once a fast gets beyond one day, you need supervision because things can go wrong as you go through the process of basically breaking up fat release toxins into the bloodstream some people get nausea some people feel uncomfortable other people just fly through it yeah okay and some people are really surprised how easy it is but you need some supervision once you go beyond one day I think fasting. that the, the the topic of fasting is relatively misunderstood and I think while there are so many benefits to fasting 
And but more so than fasting, I think what you're saying with time-restricted feeding, I think we're seeing so many benefits in the research, but also just benefits behaviorally for people. Mm. But I do sometimes wonder that something that's effective, people think, well, if it's good, more must be better. And so I've been yeah, a lot of people are doing really long fasts, but doing them frequently, and they just end up getting burnt out. That's they're not, not, they're not, taking that's not a good feel. idea. You have to build up what's called a fasting muscle. And it sounds really funny, but it's literally that. It's like when you train, you've got to build up slowly. Exactly. With fasting, you start off by probably eating for 12 hours yeah. you know, overnight. And then you start moving into time-restricted eating. Yeah. And then you might end up going a whole day, 24 hours without food. And if you're comfortable with that, you can extend that. You know, I mean, these days I haven't done extended fasting for quite a while. I might experiment with that later in the year, I'm not sure. But I can see for a lot of my clients there may be some benefits from that. Yeah. And the key thing that you mentioned, mentioned earlier, autophagy, is a term that's very commonly used in the States. I very, very rarely hear it used here. It's becoming so, a lot more common, particularly in, mm. um, in that sort of keto realm, you know, an area that yeah. I am yeah. fairly entrenched in. A lot of people know about it, and again, it's misunderstood. Well, if people want to heal, they've got to go through autophagy from an awful lot of health sort of diseases. Yeah, and uh, autophagy is—it's a—it is a bit of a new buzzword. It will become very popular here, I think. But really, you either got to do it through exercise, or you've got to do it through through fasting. It's the only way it's going to happen, really. So, or all three, or all three. What's the third one? Keto. keto. <laughs> possibly, possibly through keto. I, I need to look into that in more detail. Yeah. Possibly through keto or uh, yeah, fasting mimicking diets, which I think I think you're also familiar with. But possibly through that. I haven't looked into that, but I've looked into it through exercise and through fasting. Mm. So I'm now looking into it through keto. Yeah. But there are specific benefits for the gut on keto, which we haven't which we haven't mentioned. Yeah. So some of the research does actually show that eating ketogenic diet can be good certain health disorders through its effect on the gut. Yeah. So that would be things like autism, uh, multiple sclerosis as well, and, and of course epilepsy. You know how, how traditionally the ketogenic diet has been used, particularly with childhood epilepsy. What they're finding out now is it may well be to do with some aspect to do with gut bacteria that's triggering the changes. Yeah, that's interesting because obviously we, you know, I'm actually teaching a class on this tonight about neurodegenerative disorders and mm. the ketogenic diet. Yeah, and obviously we function very much. Uh, sorry, we, we focus very much on the, the the mechanistic and functional stuff that we know about ketogenic diets. In other words, the fueling of neurons with beta hydroxybutyrate and the change in GABA to glutamate ratio and increased adenosine in the brain. All these various yeah, things. Yeah. Seldom are people talking about the gut, but we do know that all of those things don't actually always explain the raft of effects that are happening on the keto diet. So it, it could well be, you know, and I'd obviously defer to you on that, that, that there is a lot more going on in the gut as well. Well, there is. I mean, this is, I, I forget the research. I had a look at it some time ago, but there is some research showing this and showing that a keto diet may also help repopulating certain quantities of certain type of healthy bacteria, like, yeah. for instance, Acomantia mucinophila, which, which is a common bacteria, which generally it is can often be interpreted as a sign of good, good health if you, have, if you have abundant amounts of that particular bacteria. Yeah. Uh, so there is some evidence to show that keto might help with that. But a lot may depend, in terms of gut bacteria, a lot may depend on the type of fats that, that you have within the keto diet as well. And um, also how the keto diet is structured. Exactly, you know, Because yeah. a keto diet yeah. could be anything from meat, lots of vegetables and good healthy fats through to just scoffing down blocks of cheese. 
you know. Yeah, so like, so yeah, it's it's about quality rather than quantity. Yeah, exactly. In terms of the keto diet, so there is some evidence at least showing the keto diet does help with gut. That's probably the key with everything, right? Yeah, quality comes first. Quality comes first with everything. Yeah, <laughs> so you know, if you eat too much fat and it's the wrong type, it's not going to help. Yeah. In fact, they actually did did a study, I think, comparing uh, how it affected the gut between lard and fish oil. And lard, I don't know what's the dosages that they, they use, but lard had quite a negative effect on the gut bacteria, whereas the fish will have quite a beneficial effect on gut bacteria. Interesting. So it really does depend on the type of fat. Um, I'm not saying necessarily saturated fat, because that saturated fat can come from lots of different sources. In this case, it came from lard, and that did seem to have quite a negative effect in this particular study on gut bacteria. Mm. Uh, but the real key for, you know, actually working on gut bacteria is probably carbohydrates, dare I say, coming I mean, from fiber. Yeah. The fiber and carbohydrates. Yeah. So, um, and again, you know, it's a quality so, issue, right? The, the right type that's of That's a quality issue. You have to get a small amount of carbohydrates, but it has to be the right type. Yeah. Okay. Because fiber is the most important aspect in terms of treating gut bacteria. Yeah. Um, so in New Zealand, typically we may have 20, 25 grams of fiber a day. It's not enough. No. In my opinion, we should be having at least twice that amount. Yeah. And certainly if you look at the healthy cultures throughout the world, they're having 100 grams plus of fiber a day. Yeah. <laughs> so. Pretty consistent, right? I mean, yeah. that's, that's a consistent finding. And that's one of the things that um, it does worry me a little bit about the, the movement towards the carnivore diet, you know, people just eating meat alone. Now, I understand mm -hmm. that it does... I've had my perspective shifted on a little bit recently because I understand that it does work really well for some people because they're just so intolerant to vegetable, vegetables, plant-based foods, you know, that mm. they are having real issues with that. Yeah, yeah. And they basically don't get any symptomology when they're eating just meat. My concern is that you couldn't claim that vegetables are bad for people. Because they're full of antioxidants and all those mm. various phytochemicals and they're full of fiber and resistant starch. And I think most of us would say that 99.9% .9 of people would benefit from that. Yeah. Well, if you're on a carnivore diet, there are certain things which should be clearly lacking. Uh, one is polyphenols, which we haven't touched on yet. One of the best things for gut bacteria, the things they love, and particularly the healthy gut bacteria, is the polyphenols. So they will travel right the way through the small intestine to the large intestine and feed the gut bacteria. Now, for years and years, people were saying, well, polyphenols are useless because, because we hardly absorb, we only absorb 10% of them, so they don't do much. But now they, they finally feed the gut bacteria, and then the gut bacteria look after us. So polyphenols are really, really important in terms of gut health and overall health as well. Okay, so that's extremely important. I was going to lead on to something else, but it, it, it's, um, I've gone down a tangent there. What you was, but that, that related to what you were saying before anyway. <laughs> yeah. The polyphenols are really, really well, important. Vitamin C, I mean, I know oh, that... Vitamin C, that's what I was coming back to. A lot of carnivore yeah. devotees say that, you know, you simply don't need as much vitamin C if you're not eating carbohydrate, and you absorb a heck of a lot more. And there is, obviously, there is actually some vitamin C in, in meat, and particularly in organ meats, but I still think it's yeah. too big a risk to take because the, the amounts are relatively low... Well, vitamin C is one of my favorite nutrients, and most people aren't getting enough vitamin C, even if they're on, uh, even if eating vegetables and fruit. So if you're on a carnivore diet, the vitamin C is only going to come from um, like organs, particularly, say, the adrenal gland. It, it may come from, or possibly, possibly from the liver. Yeah. Uh, but you're going to get very small amounts, and we don't make our own vitamin C. That's right. Vitamin C is needed for immunity, it's needed for connective tissue, 
So I suspected people on a carnivore diet in the longer term, and that may be one year plus, I don't know, they may start to show vitamin C deficiencies. And that may, you know, without throwing myself under the carnivore bus, that may be <laughs> yes. appearing in the research now as a few case studies of, of people, but they're eating poor diets. But that's the risk, right, is that if someone is eating a carnivore diet and it's not absolutely exemplary, in other words, eating lots of organ meats and things like that, the risk is, is massive. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you saw that study last week, I think, where um, I think it was 500 milligrams of vitamin C taken before meals had a really beneficial effect on post-meal glycemia. So people's blood sugar responses were a heck of a lot better and more consistent after meals when they had ample vitamin C. Well, I guess that sort of makes sense in a way because if you look at vitamin C, it's almost identical to a bit of to sugar. Yeah, it's a good uh, You know, in terms of its biochemistry, it's very similar. So when you get it into your gut, your your gut brain connection will be saying, "Oh, that's sugar." Possibly. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not a huge fan of actually taking too much vitamin C as a supplement. I positively think in the long term it's not not good for you. Yeah. Uh, but I think in the short term it's it's almost certainly fine. Uh, the vitamin C from food, that there's, there's no better thing because the vitamin C from food will also contain the flavonoids and the polyphenols which yeah, you yeah. Need to help your gut. Yeah. So taking a naked ascorbic acid or a naked you know, sodium ascorbate is never as good. Yeah, because yeah. everything works in complex and it's yeah. so much better than taking the complex. Yeah, because, and because our brains un understand food, they don't understand supplements in, yeah. in the same way or they don't understand things that have been stripped of something. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting, but well, we, could, <laughs> we could talk for hours, I'm sure. I know, we've covered a lot of ground uh, there. But we have covered a lot of ground. There's also a lot of things that we haven't covered, so I'll have to get you back at some point. We'll have to, to come back. follow up That's with uh, a few things. Where can people find you, Phil? Okay, well, uh, you can find on my website, which is uh, which is healthjourneysnz.com. Yeah. So www.healthjourneysnz.com. Um, that's really where you can find me if you want to look me up. Are you on uh, Facebook? Um, yeah, I'm on Facebook, but I've hardly ever use it. I'm, I'm not a great Facebook fan. Okay, we'll go to the we'll, I use we'll it occasionally. To the website. <laughs> yes, so the website. Yeah, we'll in the show notes. Um, I'm, not a, I'm not a great techno, so I use I use my website from time to time. But it's yeah. got some information on it. Um, but if you've got any any queries, you can just email me or you can phone me. It's all your contact details easy. are on your website. So all my contact details yeah. are on the website. Yeah, so awesome. it's easy to find. And uh, yeah, good that's, stuff. That's so me. if anyone has questions about gut health or wants to get in for a consultation there's no better person than phil um so we'll put up the your web address on yeah. the show notes i'm also open to um there. actually doing a, a sort of face to face type seminar at some stage you know um if there's nothing there has to be enough interest for that sort of thing yeah um but there's an awful lot of information online and i can certainly uh, help people out face to face just on one-to-one -one basis as well Perfect. Well, we'll certainly poll all of our listeners and see if anyone's interested in getting together for a workshop. Good. Great. Well, thank you, Phil. Pleasure. And Thanks, thank Cliff. you all for listening in. Uh, we're going to close it off now. Get ready for the audio podcast coming up in a couple of weeks. That was the Carb Appropriate Podcast with me, Cliff Harvey. If you'd like to watch the live recording of the podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash Cliff Harvey. Find out about me and what I do at cliffharvey.com and make sure you subscribe to this podcast on all popular podcast channels and to our YouTube channel at holisticperformance.tv.